Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Well, good morning again. If you weren't here earlier, my name is Bruce Strugsma. I'm the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. We are glad you are here in person. We are glad you're joining us online. Uh, thank you, choir, again. Uh, it's great to have you back after a season of uh, not as often with the choir as we are used to. Um, the choir is back, which is a opportunity for me to make a shameless plug for the choir. If uh, you are interested in being a part of that, uh, please talk to Mary Jo, who is sitting up here. Um, she would love to get you plugged into that as they are going to be getting back into the regular rotation in our worship this, uh, on, on Sunday morning. So we're excited to have them. If you have some singing ability, um, talk to her. We'd love to have you join the choir as that is a significant part of how we enter into worship uh, on Sunday mornings through singing, through prayer, uh, through the choir, through performance, um, and then into digging into God's word, which is what we're going to do to do next. And we're continuing our series on the book of Judges called uh, Case Studies in Chaos. Chaos um, seems to reign sometimes, and we need, no look, we need to look no further than this morning, right? Uh, all it takes in Minnesota to kind of throw the world into chaos is a sudden shift from abnormally warm to normal temperatures. I know this feels unusual and it feels shockingly cold, but realistically, it's January in Minnesota. And we should you know, be used to this, but we haven't been. We've been experiencing warmer than average temperatures, and all of a sudden we have this, this chaos. But chaos can seem to reign no matter where you are. It seems to be a part of life. No matter what we do, no matter where we live, no matter what we're going through, that one little thing pops up and throws everything out of kilter. And so chaos is a part of our life. Chaos is a part of reality. And chaos was definitely happening in the book of Judges. And that's why we're looking at these stories. And our goal, again, is not to glory in the failures of others. As we look through the book of Judges, we'll see that the people of Israel time and again rejected God, turned away from God. It seems that they didn't learn the lessons. And it's tempting to sit there when we read Scripture and put ourselves in the position of authority in the story. It's easy for us to see ourselves as the ones who get it because we're reading the whole story. You know, when we get to the stories uh, in the New Testament where Jesus is talking with the disciples and the disciples seem to ask such ridiculous questions, it's tempting to put ourselves in the position of somebody who goes, come on, guys, get it together, Right? We like to see ourselves as the hero. We are the hero of our own stories. We are the main character in our own novels. And it's tempting to put ourselves in that position. And, and, and that's not what I want us to do here with judges. And as we look at these characters, we're not glorying in somebody else's failure that we get it and they don't. Instead, we're looking at these, hopefully seeing glimpses of ourselves, the way that we, time and again, seem to fall into the same sins, the same temptations. And instead of glorying in somebody else doing it, hopefully we can learn some lessons from it. And the biggest lesson I think we could walk away with in the book of Judges is the idea that God continues to be at work in broken places. That even while things are falling apart in Israel, God is still there and God is still at work. And there are some uh, striking similarities, not only between Judges in our time now, but other times in history as well. This past fall, I went up to Camp Shamanoff for 
the pastor's teaching conference in October and they brought in a guy from Trinity who taught church history by the name of Dr. Scott Manich. And he taught on the life of Martin Luther. And the life of Martin Luther is a time that was also pretty chaotic. And it's also a life that would be tempting to look at and say, you know, when Martin Luther makes the right decision, be like, yeah, I'd have done that, totally. And when Martin Luther makes the wrong decision, to be like, how could you not see that coming? Because we have the benefit of looking with hindsight. But Martin Luther was at a, alive at a time what historians would call a gray zone in world history. And these gray zones are times that are in between significant times. For Martin Luther, it was the transition from the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, to the Renaissance. There's a lot of change going on for, for our characters in Israel, for the, the, the judges that were looking at the book of Judges. It was the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. These gray zones, these in-between spaces can be times where chaos reigns and upheaval as things change. Just a few things I want to highlight in the, that are similar. It can come with major cultural changes for Israel there was an upheaval on the world stage as the world found itself in this in-between space. And they're seeing nation states that had been world powers for centuries collapse. And they're seeing this uprising of the tribal, smaller city-states. For Martin Luther, as I said, it was the world going from the Dark Ages to the Renaissance. And while these ages... The Iron Age, the Bronze Age, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance. These were all man-made after the fact. We went back and went, oh, this transition was happening. Uh, they might not have known it in that moment. In fact, they most likely didn't. And so we might look at our world and see a lot of cultural upheaval. And maybe we're in one of those gray zones. Maybe not. Maybe we're transitioning you know, from the information age to something else. But whether we are or not, this major upheaval brought chaos to them. And when we find ourselves in chaos, maybe it's an opportunity to look at what people in those ages did and see what lessons we can learn. It can come with major leadership change. As I said, for the people of Israel, it was going from the leadership of a centralized government in Joshua and Moses to a completely tribal lifestyle where people stopped caring about what was happening to their neighboring communities. As we look through Judges, we'll see stuff happening in different places at different times that while one area is experiencing peace and is walking with the Lord, another area is in rebellion. For the time of uh, Martin Luther, it was a time when, similar to what was happening in Israel, the world stage was in flux. They were making a similar transition away from this world power of Rome, and we're seeing the rise of nation states in the Renaissance. Germany was becoming a real local power, and instead of just being subservient to Rome. It can come with major technology changes. For Israel, the move from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age completely changed the world. Weaponry and machinery. For Martin Luther, it was the printing press and increased literacy that completely shaped this time. And we could look to our own world and we can see, we can see technology changes, we can see cultural changes, we can see leadership changes, we can see all of these things. And, and I don't wanna cast a, an entire picture of gloom and doom because A, we don't know if we're in one of those times and B, on the other side of it was a better day 
was a better age, was a better era, was, a, was God was doing something new. And while there were negatives with those changes, there were positives as well. And so we don't wanna live in fear that, oh, maybe we're in that transition spot, but rather we wanna look at it and go, okay, God, in the midst of this, what are some lessons we can learn? And as we look to the story of Gideon this morning, and as we compare that a little bit with the story of Martin Luther, I hope we can look to them and say, okay, how do we trust God and walk? How do we trust God and walk? And, and how does God prepare somebody who he has called? Because both Martin Luther and Gideon had a call to step out and do something that they did not feel prepared to do. And how many of us can relate where we see something happening, we feel God might be moving and we sit there and go, but God, I'm, I'm inadequate. I, I'm not capable of what you are calling me to. God, I can't do it. And so what are those lessons that we can learn? And into this chaos, we find Israel. And kind of the thesis statement again of the book of Judges from Judges chapter 17, verse six. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this idea, this individuality, this, this idea that I don't have to listen to somebody else. I can do what I think is right that pride, that arrogance is going to once again lead them into the pattern of the judges, this idea of apostasy, of turning away from God, leading to servitude, serving not only a foreign master, but the sin that has brought them there, which hopefully leads them to, to supplication, repentance, and deliverance. That moment when they hit rock bottom and turn to God. And so that's the call on all of us when we find ourselves in these times of chaos is to go, God, where are you? And God, what is my role in this? And where are the spots where I need to look at my own life? And so as we look at Gideon, as we look at scripture, look for where God might be speaking to you and saying, this is what I'm calling you to do. And so we're going to look at Gideon, which is one of the more well-known judges so far. We've looked at some that are less well-known. Gideon, especially if you grew up in church, you know the story of Gideon to some degree, hopefully. But I hope there's still some lessons in here we can learn from the story of Gideon. And so we're going to look first at the setup. As with any passage of scripture, the reason why they got there can be just as important as what they do in that moment. All the way through, we've been looking at so far the judges and talking about how this idea comes up again and again and again. And it starts with the word again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And that is a theme throughout scripture. And as I've said before, I think that's a theme in our lives. Again, we turn away from God. Again, we try and do it our own way. Again, we listen to those voices we know we shouldn't listen to. Again, again, again. We are no different. The lesson is can we repent maybe faster? Because we should know better. And by this time, Israel should have known better. And last week we looked at Deborah, which if you recall from last week, that story primarily affected the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. And as you can see, as we get into it this morning, this is affecting a different part of the country. So there's potentially some overlap here. Again, we're not really sure, but there's potentially some overlap. That while Deborah is a judge over here and they're experiencing some level of peace, over here they're not in these other tribes. And so let's read this morning the first 11 verses from Judges chapter six. 
The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. We see the same pattern again. The same pattern we saw in Deborah, the same pattern we saw with Joshua, the same pattern that we will see again and again and again as we move forward, this idea that God goes, I saved you, I brought you out of the land of slavery, I brought you into this land of freedom, and I told you one thing, don't worship their gods. And you do. And you do, and, and, and it's interesting because here we see them cry out and we see the second and last prophet in the book of Judges step forward. This anonymous prophet who says, hey, this was the deal. God told you not to worship their gods and you have. And you have, you have rejected the Lord. And so we see them here in this gray zone, in this moment where they're crying out to God and it seems not out of hope, not out of trust, not out of a desire to repent, but out of desperation. They're hiding. They're in clefts in the mountains. All throughout this time, instead of turning to God, they've been turning to foreign gods, to idol worship. Despite the fact that these foreign gods are ravaging their land through the people that worship those foreign gods, despite the fact that those foreign gods were not the ones that defeated Egypt, they're worshiping them anyway. And then when things don't go the way they want, then they turn to the Lord. And, and how many of us do the same thing? When life is going great, we talk about how great our relationship with the Lord is because our life is going great. And then when things fall apart, then it's that crying out to God. And I mentioned this before, God, save me and I will serve you. Like we put those qualifications on it. That God, if you do what I want, then I'll do what you want. And we get it backwards. And we see the same thing. In fact, I think it's really funny. Martin Luther didn't want to be a monk. Perhaps one of the most famous monks, and he didn't want to be a monk. What happened is he was walking along the road and he got stuck in a storm. And he cried out to God and he said, and actually he cried out to St. Anne, but uh, cried out, St. Anne, if you save me, I will become a monk. And he lives and becomes a monk. How many of us do the same thing? God, if you do what I want, 
God, if you save me. And Israel is crying out, not out of hope for the Lord, but out of desperation. And we see the same of Gideon. We see a man who is fallible from the start. He is weak, he is scared, and he is hiding, and he is no different than anyone else. They're all hiding, they're all scared, they're all weak, and here we see him hiding. And we see this as a result of their apostasy. They are seeking just to get away. So the question for us is, where are we hiding? Where are we hiding where we we so want to hold on to our sin, our priorities, our focus, our desires, that instead of trusting the Lord, we wait until things get bad enough to cry out in desperation. God, I've tried it on my own enough. God, I've tried all these other systems, all these other programs. God, if you finally save me, then I will worship you. Then I will love you. Where do we find ourselves in that same gray zone where instead of starting from a space of hope and trust in the Lord, we start on our own power. And when that doesn't work, finally we turn to the Lord. And as critical as we can be of Martin Luther crying out to St. Anne or the Israelites crying out to false gods, we do, we do the same thing. Instead of confessing our sin and going to the Lord, we seek to take it in on our own power. I can white-knuckle it. I can control it on my own. And then I'll be able to stand before God and go, look, God, look what I did. And we're called instead to start by looking to God and saying, God... I have sinned. Where are we living in fear of what the world seems to bring to our door instead of seeing God at work? And trusting that even unto death, it is better to trust the Lord. That if you are standing with God, even if you're in an awful situation, you're in a better spot because you are with him. And thank God, even though the Israelites, even though Gideon even though Martin Luther, even though all of us sometimes cry out to him for the wrong reasons, God still listens. God still listens. And like in the story of Deborah, God makes the first move in Gideon's story. And we see the call. And in the call, we see where God moves first. Thank God it is not dependent on who Gideon is at this time. Thank God it's not dependent on who I am when the Lord calls me. Thank God God calls us when we are not prepared. And God often seems to show up when we least expect it. The first time I ever had the opportunity to to teach the gospel, to teach from scripture, I was working at Rock Ridge, um, a summer camp, part of Camp Shamina up in the Boundary Waters. And I was on summer staff that year as a counselor. And if you've been to Camp Shamina, you might know that they do chapel every night and they usually bring in a chapel speaker for the week. It could be a youth pastor or a pastor or somebody who comes in and shares with the students every night. And so the, the camp staff puts together the schedule for the week and then the chapel speaker does, does the, the, 
the teaching, the, the, the biblical preaching at the end. Rock Ridge was small enough they couldn't afford to bring in speakers, so they had the camp staff do it. So here I am, a college sophomore, studying at Crown to be a youth pastor, um, ready to, you know, I'm going to do this for a living. I'm going to preach the gospel. And they come to me and they say, Bruce, how about if you take Monday night's chapel all summer? Write one message, give it every Monday night at chapel. How about if you do that? I said, great. And, and I did due diligence. Like I put in the effort. I took the time, I studied, I, I, I wrote out what I was going to say, and I got up that first week of chapel, that first week of camp, Monday night, which for the record is really the first real night of chapel. Sunday night they do chapel, but it's usually more get to know you, pretty casual. Monday night you're, you're really digging in. It was terrible. It was horrendous. Like, it was bad enough that I sat down in the front row embarrassed, like thinking they're going to come to me and be like, you know... We're going to have somebody else take Monday nights from here out. That was painful. And it was. It, 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 was, it was awful. And I sat there just appalled and embarrassed and questioning my future. And God still used it. It was the only time, of all the times, and I've spoken at camp a lot of times since then, it's the only time where students put in their end-of-week camp evaluations that the Monday night speaker touched them. Worst one I've ever done, God still used it. To this day, I'm pretty certain I could have gotten up and given the Gettysburg Address and it would have had impact because it was not me. It was the Holy Spirit. And thankfully, God uses us even when we don't feel qualified. So here Gideon is. Gideon is not qualified. When we find Gideon called by the Lord, he is harvesting wheat in a wine press. For those of you that don't know ancient Near East farming techniques, this is a bad idea. Wheat requires a lot of space because you generally need a lot of plants to get a crop. And you need wind because you'll beat the wheat and then you'll toss it in the air and the wind will blow the chaff away. Wine presses are the exact opposite. Wine presses, you have grapes, they have a lot of liquid in them, you want to maintain the liquid. Wind, as we know from wind chill as well, tends to take things away like moisture. So a wine press is created in a sheltered spot to maintain things in the space. And they're smaller. You don't make these huge vats of wine, at least you didn't back then. So in other words, he's in the wrong place. Why? He is so afraid. And, and this tells us a couple of things. One, that he's afraid, but we already know that. And we know a lot of other people are. That's not unusual. It tells us he's not had a very successful crop. We already know that they've been ravaging the land. If you're harvesting wheat in a wine press, you don't have a lot you got a very little crop, a very small crop. So here we find him. In other words, Gideon is harvesting poorly in both quantity and quality on his own power. This is not his best moment, but that is when God shows up. And so we'll pick it up in verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, 
But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Once again, Gideon is no different than the people of that time. Despite all they had done to reject God, they are still blaming God for what's happening. Look at that. They're blaming God. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And how many of us have done the same thing? God, I'm a Christian. Why are bad things happening to me? As if somehow being uh, in, in name a follower of Jesus should exempt us from anything uncomfortable. Why is this stuff happening? And we hear that cry not only in the church, but outside the church. What's still one of the biggest criticisms people have of God and Christianity? If God is a good God, why do bad things happen? And we see Gideon making the same complaint. We want God on our terms, even when he calls to us. Even when God calls us mighty warrior, we want God on our terms like Gideon, like the people of Israel. When all things were going well for them, they were not turning to God. But now that things are bad, out of desperation, they turn to God. And Gideon is no different. Why are all these things happening? The focus is not on our own sin and how we have brought ourselves to this spot, but God seeks to move Gideon beyond that. And I think God seeks to move us beyond that as well. Verses 14 through 16, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. Even here, we see Gideon really hasn't caught it yet. How am I going to do it, God? How am I going to do it? God is clearly saying, I'm going to go with you. And he says, how can I save Israel? And he immediately points to his clan. My clan is the weakest, and I am the lowest in my family. How can I save Israel? God is trying to correct Gideon's focus. And how often is our focus on ourselves? And if we look at ourselves, none of us is qualified. None of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us is qualified. If we look to ourselves, none of us will do anything. We will, like Gideon, sit in fear. We'll hide. We'll bring our wheat to wine presses and do nothing because... We can't do it. And to go back to Martin Luther, Martin Luther, we think of him as this bold, well-known, intelligent person. And eventually he was, but when he first started out, he was not. He lived in fear. The first time he did mass, he almost failed doing mass because he thought he was incompetent and unworthy. He struggled with depression, anxiety, all of these things. In fact, Literally a year or two before he posted the 95 Thesis on the door at Wittenberg, another monk released a list of the top 100 most influential monks in the nation of Germany, not in the Catholic Church, just in his country, which doesn't have a lot of monks. 
He isn't on the list. He doesn't make the top 100 in Germany, much less the world. And shortly things would change. And shortly things would change for Gideon, but we do know Gideon has his eyes on himself. And even that incorrect focus can still be used by God. But it starts with Gideon responding to the call. It starts with us responding to the, God, to the call. When God calls you to step out, do not lose focus by focusing on yourself, your wants, your desires, and who you are and whether or not you're qualified. And we do it all the time. We feel this prompting by the Holy Spirit to reach out to somebody and we're afraid that if I share the gospel with them, what if they ask a question I don't know how to answer? Or, or, or what, if, what if I don't know what to say? And so instead of trusting that the Lord could be moving, that the Lord will speak through us, and maybe the most effective thing we can say is, I don't know, we do nothing. Because our focus isn't on God and what he can do. Our focus is on ourselves. We are strong because Christ is with us. We are able because Christ has called us. Go in that strength. And so finally, we're going to see Gideon respond well. And he is going to start testing the call. He's going to start testing the call. He's going to start moving forward. And again, as ones who have, if you grew up in church, you've read this book, this story, I would encourage you, don't jump to the end in your mind. Stay with Gideon where he's at. Because again, I think we can get kind of critical of Gideon when he does all of this, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe baby steps forward. And yet think about all the times where we feel like God is moving us into something and we keep taking these little steps that God keeps honoring. We don't jump to the end. Don't be critical of Gideon because he doesn't jump to the end. See instead that he steps out. He starts testing the call. Sometimes obedience with God requires us to keep taking it one step at a time. And so for Gideon, he starts by setting out food for his guests. We're going to read that he sets out food for this guest. And, and there's some uh, historians and theologians and biblical scholars who think that he does it because he's still not sure. All the way through, he keeps on saying, my Lord, my Lord. And we know it's an angel of the Lord He's not necessarily as confident of that as we are. And so he sets out some food, and, and they think that maybe he did that kind of going, if this is a prank, if this is a hoax, if this is somebody trying to give me a hard time and trick me, they're not going to stick around as long as it takes to make the food he's about to make. So this is his first step. And so we're going to pick, up, pick it up in verses 20 through 24. The angel of God said to him, take the meat... And the unleavened bread, so he'd made this meal, and they'd sat there and waited the whole time, and placed them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizorites. 
And here we see the first change in Gideon. He realizes he's had an encounter with God and his focus shifts from him to God. Alas, I've seen the Lord. And now we're gonna start to see him take his next little step. And his next little step is in a world that is experiencing zero peace. He takes God as as his word. When God says, the Lord is peace, peace, do not be afraid. Gideon builds an altar and he names it peace. There is no peace for him. Not at this moment. Midian is still destroying the land and he says, the Lord is peace. This is a big step. Where is God already at work that maybe we need to respond to? Where are the spots where we need to build an altar and say, God has promised peace and I'm not seeing it yet, but I'm gonna call it peace. Or maybe trust or maybe faith. Maybe grace. Where are the spots where God is already working and instead of us sitting back and going, I'm going to wait and see a little bit more before I decide. Where do we need to take that first baby step and trust God's word? For Martin Luther, the first step was the 95 thesis. He's unknown. He posts, we we have this picture in our head of him pounding into the door in defiance and in reality, this was the way that theologians communicated with other theologians. He's, he's posting it to the Journal of Theology or similar. And if you read through most of it, most of it doesn't apply today. And most of it was very nuanced even then. It was adjustments. There were a couple of bold statements in there, but they were kind of covered. Why is he doing this? Because he has finally found freedom in Christ. And he knows, as Ray read from Romans, that it is by grace you are saved through faith. And he wants to make sure that the peasantry hears this. It's not this big, first, bold move. It's a small step. He's he's frustrated with the corruption he's seeing in a neighboring town, and he doesn't want it to affect his people. That's his first step. So what's that first step for you where you can push in and you can start testing it out? You know, maybe somebody's called something out in you and said, hey, you're a mighty warrior. I think you have this gifting. Where's the spot where maybe you need to step out and say, okay, I'm going to try it. I don't know if I can serve in kids' ministry. I don't know if I can serve in youth ministry. I don't know if I can be on the choir. I don't know if I can do all these things, but I'm going to start by taking one one step. I'm going to put my toes in the pool before I cannonball. And God honors that. But God pushes him to take his next step. Verse 25, that same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. God through this is declaring war on the gods of the Midianites. Asherah poles and altars to Baal, you could not burn bones on them. It would desecrate them. Make them unacceptable for future worship. Him killing a bull and burning it on the altar desecrates it. He is declaring war. It's the same as when God, through the the plagues in Egypt, attacks individual gods of Egypt. I'm going to attack this God. I'm going to attack this God. I'm going to attack all these things that you put your faith in besides me to see if you really do trust me or if you're trusting these other things. It's all about repentance 
God is declaring war on the things that we hold up. And notice that the first thing he's called to desecrate is his own altar, not somebody else's. When God calls us to move, start by looking at what altars you have built up before you start poking around at somebody else's. And it works. Gideon goes out a little bit in trepidation and fear. God pushes him to take his next step immediately before he has a chance to back out, but he does it at night. He goes in darkness, but it's still up on high. They wake up in the morning and they see the pole is down. They see the smoldering embers. They know what happened. In fact, they know who it is. If you read the story, they immediately go to Gideon's father's house and go, your altar got desecrated and it was by somebody in this house. We want to know who. And here we see the first change in somebody else because of Gideon. Verse 31, Gideon's father turns to them and says, if Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. And isn't that the truth? If it really is about us, if it really is about my own power, then it's going to be about my own power. And God might be poking at some of these things to go, who are you really trusting? There was a time in my life where I felt, I felt like I was losing control. I felt like I had this, this nice life and everything, you know, I was married, I had a good job, I had kids on the way, and then we found out that Darren and Maria were premature and were going to need a lot of extra help. And then we found out by the time they came home that, that uh, they were going to need some more time in, in medical assistance. And I didn't want to hear that. And then I lost my job. And then my father-in-law got diagnosed with leukemia. And I felt like my raft was disintegrating. And I remember turning to God and going, God, if you take away all my logs, I won't float anymore. And he said, so which one are you grabbing? Am I going to grab at the log of financial security? Am I going to grab at the log of a good job? Am I going to grab at the log of anything I can do myself? Or am I going to grab for the God log, the only one that was keeping the whole raft afloat anyway? Which log am I grabbing for? And that's what's going on here. God can poke at these things. But a change has happened in Gideon. He is a new man. Notice his next step, verse 34 and 35. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. He sent messengers through Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. And right before then, he blows his trumpet, signaling the troops. He's a different man. He blows the trumpet. He's stepping in. He's going, okay, God, you, you, you took care of the food I offered. You weren't, you weren't joking. And then I took the next step, and tore down the altar and saw that you protected me. Okay, I'm ready to go. He blows the trumpet. Trust God to move. Look for ways God has moved and look for him to move again. Our actions are obedience and God's action is to move. We obey, he does it. Gideon is finally prepared to trust. He's prepared to trust. And, and for those of us that know the story, we know Gideon sets out some fleece before the Lord. In fact, we've started even, in, especially in Christian circles, we talk about putting out a fleece. It's this idea of seeing if God is doing something. I'm going to put out a fleece. I'm going to pray and ask God to show me some way that he's divinely moving. I would like to point out that now he's putting out the fleece. He's already blown the trumpet. He's already called the troops. Now he's putting out the fleece. 
I think sometimes we get that backwards. We think the goal is for a God to give us his entire plan and then we'll trust. We want God to give us the map and God is going like GPS turn by turn by turn and we just need to trust for the next turn. Imagine if God had told Gideon exactly what was gonna happen from the get-go. Gideon might not have taken him up on it. Gideon needed time to walk that path. So now he's putting out the fleeces. It comes after obedience. Picking it up in verse 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And this is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. And I think we get this wrong all the time. Gideon is not perfect. He is still struggling with what God is doing. He's still not sure, but he has blown the trumpet. He's torn down an altar. He's a different person, but there's still this uncertainty. Okay, God, the next step is really big. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this and, and then I'm gonna struggle with it enough to go, actually, that one might've been natural. You know, maybe fleece attracts dew in ways that the ground doesn't when the dew point is such. So why don't I set out again and I'll do the opposite. It's okay sometimes to still struggle. I love that as we get to the end of the gospels and Jesus is going up into heaven, that the disciples who have seen him resurrected, it says some still doubted. It's okay to still question and wonder and go, God, I'm not sure. Remember, we know the end of this story. We don't know the end of ours. It's okay to still question and have, and have challenges, but Gideon keeps moving forward and so should we. Starting in chapter seven, the first three verses, early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remain. And so God whittles it down and, and soon he says, now, now take them to the river and drink. Take them to the river and drink and any of them who drink this way release and any of them who drink that way keep. And he keeps the ones that scoop with their hand and, and drink this way rather than the ones who get down on all fours and put their face in the water. A lot of hypothesis on why they this way or that way. That's not important. What's important is he's left with 300. He goes from 32,000, which is a reasonable army, to 300, which is a ridiculously small army. And these are not the special forces. These are not the Green Berets. These are a random collection of 300 people who weren't scared and who drank water from their hand. I would like to suggest that maybe there's some football teams that could adjust their drafting strategies to pick differently. But we see him change. And we see that Jesus does the same. 
When we are faced with questions, when we are faced with doubts, he whittles it down to a spot where we cannot pretend it's our own strength. We have to rely on him. In Mark chapter 9, there's a, a man who comes to Jesus. His son is overcome with an evil spirit, and he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And what is Jesus' response? If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Shouldn't that be the cry of all of our hearts? Gideon is faced with the possibility of taking 300 men against a giant army. There's still room for him to go, I don't see how you're gonna do this, God, so I believe, but help my unbelief. Those two can exist together. God, I'm gonna move forward because I trust, but you need to help me because I'm really struggling with this one. But these little steps, these little steps by Gideon of continuing to move forward, these little steps throughout his life, we'll see Martin Luther get attacked for his thesis and he just keeps taking little step after little step after little step. It's, a, it's not until years later that he makes his bold stand where he's finally standing before the, the authorities, and he says, here I stand, I can do no other, help me God, amen. But he doesn't say that the day after the thesis, in the same way Gideon doesn't do these things immediately. It's a little step after little step. So look for God to be leading you on that path. Take the next step in front of you. It might not all make sense. And that's where the cry of our heart needs to be, God, help my unbelief. Fear can remain. Just like the disciples, there were some who still doubted. Fear can remain. Even at this moment, God allows Gideon to still have fear. And so Gideon, God says to Gideon, if you're afraid, go to the camp and listen. One more little step. Go to the camp and listen. And we pick it up in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 7. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. No matter where you are in this journey, like Gideon, that is our response. Obedience and worship. Obedience and worship. Take the next step, obedience and worship. And trust God to do all of the details. And just as we end this morning, I wanna end with one last parallel between Gideon and Luther. And our last parallel is this, that this obedience and worship, obedience and worship is not a one-time thing, it's a lifelong thing. Wherever you are, take the next step in obedience and worship and trust God to move and keep stepping and keep walking and keep following because that's how God works. And as soon as we experience something big by God, it's easy to stop and move back into that spot of it's all about me. And we see Martin Luther move into that and we see Gideon move into that because again, both of them are fallible people. Neither one of them is perfect. 
Neither are we. And we need to take the warning to keep moving forward. Obedience and worship. Obedience and worship. Our last passage this morning. Jump at, jumping ahead. Gideon will defeat the Midianites. God will defeat the Midianites. And then we get to chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. I'll pause right there. That's where Gideon should have said, no, I didn't. God did. God's criticism proved right. If I give you too many men, you'll think you did it by your own power, and even with 300 men, the temptation is to think he did it himself. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And then he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring and your sh from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. The answer, they answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Once again, Gideon sees God moves and immediately steps back and moves back into a spot of worshiping something man-made that he can control because it's scary. It's scary to keep stepping out when God calls us into something and we don't know what's going to happen. It's scary to keep taking that step. And Gideon reverts. And we'll see the same Martin Luther later in his life will write some awful things. Awful things that are later on used by the Nazis to promote the Holocaust. And that isn't all of Martin Luther's story, but it is part of it. And this is not all of Gideon's story, but it is part of it. And it is our reminder that following God is not just a moment thing. It needs to be a lifelong thing. That we must continue to pursue God and trust him for the next step, even when we get to that spot where it feels like we've arrived, to know that God might still be doing something. So we keep seeking the next step and trust that God is leading. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the warning and the lesson from the life of Gideon. Help us to trust. Help us to trust the next step. God, help us to trust that you, God, might be calling us into something that makes no sense to us. And we might be tempted to, to do it on our own power. We, we might be afraid of what might happen. But God, help us to trust and help us to worship. Help us to respond by seeing you move, by worshiping and looking for you to move again. God, help us to avoid the snare of selfishness and self-focus. Thinking that we can do it on our own power and to know that you are doing something. God, forgive us for the ways that we have taken matters into our own hands as a church, as individuals, as a community, as a country. God, forgive us for the ways 
that we have not acknowledged you as our God. Lord, help us to tear down the false gods that we have built up in our own households. God, the false gods we've built up in our own churches. God, help us to to be that shining light, that beacon. God, that highlights you and you alone. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Before we end this morning, just a couple of things that I do want to highlight. We're talking about taking the next step. And there are a couple of next steps facing us as a congregation. One of them, the next step that we're looking and trusting God to move is um, at our congregational meeting in a couple of weeks. We're gonna be asking for two significant votes. The first one is on Luke, uh, calling Luke to be our youth pastor. Um, Just a clarification on that, that I wanna make sure we understand that our our voting him in, he will still be part-time status until he graduates. Um, But we're going to call him as our youth pastor with the assumption being that we as a church will step up and financially have the resources to move him to full time in June. We're seeing our budget move in that direction, but we need people to faithfully continue to give to be in a spot where that will be um, what we can do in June. And so that is part of our vote as well is that we are voting to bringing him on uh, full time. So we will vote to call him with the assumption that we will be able to bring him on full time. The other vote is on some uh, new members. We have several people who have applied for membership. You can see their names on the screen. Um, the encouragement is if you don't know those names, some of them should be known to most of you, some of them might be new, please get to know them. Uh, get to know them uh, so that we can affirm them as believers and members in our church. Um, So that is why we give these names to you ahead of time, so that you have some time if you don't know them to get to know them. So I'd invite all of the the members to make sure they come for that uh, meeting to vote on both Luke and and those new members. Um, Lastly, students, uh, you have opportunities this this summer. Next week, there's going to be a bunch of youth at Winter Wipeout. Uh, opportunities to take your next step by going to that. Opportunities this summer to participate in Challenge and Witness, the two um, summer trips for middle school and high school students. The Challenge meeting for today is postponed because Luke is out unexpectedly this morning, so that has been postponed. If you hadn't heard, keep an eye on your email. But I would encourage you to take your next step um, by participating as a student, by participating in one of those things this summer. We'll end this morning with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.